sound and not light. Thank you. Okay, oh, there I am. Um, yeah, if you wire me for lights, I really get com- uh, confused. Uh, let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 4. While you're finding that, I will uh, say a couple things. Uh, it's a really, it really is a, pr- a privilege to be here. I, I guess after that introduction, it's amazing that after um, all those years, Michael still asked me to come and share the word with you this morning. So, I mean... That's just an act of grace in itself right there, that uh, he would still do so after having listened to me so much. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, Amazing grace. We just sort of talked about that already, right? Um, This is a a wonderful Sunday in my mind. Some years ago, I I read a little book by uh, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? It really struck me uh, that the questions of social controversy at that time, abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, we now call it, uh, were big and raging questions, and they still really are. They're still debated hotly by people. Um, I can still remember in in a class uh, of English literary history, a real controversial class, I might add, English literary history, about, you know, 10 of us in this class. And I was sitting next to a guy, and he was just chit-chatting with me about things, and he brought up this subject of abortion. And sitting to my left was this tall, attractive young lady who was just sort of there. And in the midst of our conversation, before the professor even came in, she stood up, she turned on us, and read us the riot act, and stormed out the door. I realized at that moment that there was a little bit of heat connected with the subject of abortion. (laughs) And not always as much light as you might want to have. But um, after reading this book by Schaefer and Koop, uh, who was then the uh, Surgeon General of the United States, and Francis Schaefer, a Christian apologist and philosopher, and uh, written some very significant books, some of which I hope you will read someday, if not already, uh, I determined from that time forward that I would kind of chime in, at least annually, if not more frequently than that, on this Sunday, closest to that controversial and yet um, uh, culture-shaping decision by the Supreme Court in 1973 that pretty much legalized abortion on demand right up to the moment of birth in every every state of the nation, that at least on one Sunday, without equivocation, I would stand up and say, wait, whatever might be legal is not necessarily moral. We need to affirm that human life is a sacred gift from God. Well, when the uh, CareNet Pregnancy Center, back in the day it was called the Ellensburg Pregnancy Care Center, held its annual dessert banquet way back in 1998, it invited, the organizers invited Terry Reiser to come and speak. And she was a significant leader in the kind of ministry that the center does and an able partner to her husband, Paul, who was a medical doctor and author. Her message was morally clear and at the same time compassionate, which, by the way, the good news always is morally clear and compassionate. At the beginning of her speech, she quoted Frederica Matthews Green, a columnist and an author who has written extensively on the experience of women who have had abortions. Well, Ms. Reiser said that Ms. Matthews Green has written this, quote, women have abortions for the same reason a wild animal chews off its own leg to escape a trap. I thought, well, that sort of changes the perspective of the whole thing, doesn't it? 
Think about this for a minute. The wild animal is trapped, fears death, sees no other way out, and so does violence to his own body to escape. Well, so also the woman who has an abortion does violence to herself and to her preborn child to escape what is, in her perspective, an, an economic, a, a personal, a social trap. Well, my challenge today is, how can we help people who have fallen into some deadly moral and social trap to spring, spring the trap without losing the leg? Now, that's where offering what I think is right to call necessary grace is appropriate. We must affirm that, well, abortion is a grievous evil that has ushered in a moral climate described by some as the culture of death. But we must also show compassion. We must engage in what Eugene Peterson has called redemptive subversion. We must subvert the culture of death by expressing more fully than ever the power of God to bring about resurrection life. In short, we must continue to offer necessary grace. So to find guidance in this formidable task, I think we can look back to the, to the only one who ever balanced these twin challenges perfectly, our Lord Jesus Christ. He will show us by his example how we too can, can demonstrate a life-giving compassion while at the same time affirming the righteous life that God demands and gives power to live. He offered and still does offer, and we still offer in his name, necessary grace. We call it grace because it arises freely from the very merciful character of God. Where would we be without that? But it's also necessary because there's no other way to spring the trap without losing a leg. We have sinned after all and we need both forgiveness and new life and power to live the new life. And so let's turn to a kind of a familiar story. I hope it is for you. John chapter 4. And uh, let's read a little bit. I'll read aloud from verses 1 through 10. Here we go. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water for Jesus, or to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And he just never gets old. Well, notes first of all, we offer necessary grace when we, we join Jesus in his search for lost people. Jesus obviously ignored the prejudices and the practices of his time when he, it says, had to go through Samaria. People of Jesus' time would have said just the opposite, by the way, as this startling word in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. They would have had to travel around Samaria. They would have done anything to avoid setting foot in Samaria. You know, 
Judea is in the south and Galilee is in the north. And it looks like, you know, with Samaria in between, that geographically you have to go through Samaria to get from one to the other. But they would have said just the opposite. We have to go around Samaria. We don't even want to stand in the dirt that those people use to plant their food in, you know. Um, they would have crossed the Jordan River, traveled, if they were going from Judea, traveled north until they got completely past the territory of Samaria, and then they would cut back in. Well, people of Jesus' time who were descended from Israel never, never set foot in Samaria if they could help it. And consider their reasons. First of all, the Samaritans had a, had a tainted history. They were the product of the resettlement practices of the king of Assyria some centuries before. And during the time of the divided kingdom of Israel and what was called Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, named after its primary uh, tribe in the lower southern kingdom, the, the land called Israel in the north was conquered by Assyria. Well, the king deported all of the people still alive in the area and then resettled it with people from other places. And after lions began attacking and killing some of the people, we're told in the Old Testament story, he thought, ah, I've made the god of that country mad. You know, he had this little provincial idea of gods that they rule over a certain, you know, geographical area. And he says, I've made that guy mad. I need to do something. So he sent some people back to resettle there and teach them to worship Yahweh, God of Israel. Well, they did so. But they just sort of added that in right along with all the other pagan deities. Now we have the worship of all these other gods and the Lord. Also, just to make sure we got all the bases covered, right? Well, there was also a second, this was also kind of the second half of the reason that people in Israel, or rather in Jesus' time in Israel, sort of hated the Samaritans. They had a tainted religious tradition. Not only was their ethnic heritage sort of mixed up, but their religious tradition was too. Their worship of God was stirred together with the worship of everyone and everything else. So they were racially and religiously impure. That's the way they looked at it. Right or wrong, that's why they would have said just the opposite. You have to go around Samaria. But Jesus, notice, had to go through Samaria. That tells us a lot right there. Jesus combined his own need with an opportunity to seek a lost woman. He was tired. He sat down by the well to rest. His need became the pretext for a divine appointment. And then Jesus shocked this woman with his request for help. She was accustomed to being ignored. After all, she was drawing water at probably high noon, the sixth hour. We started counting from about 6 a.m. You know, who goes and draws water in the heat of the day? Not too many people. So there's a good chance that she was kind of already sort of on the outs with most folks. The rest of the women in town probably came in the early hours of the morning when it was cooler. And besides, it was just not proper for a man to, to address a woman in public, not to mention the fact that this man appeared to be Jewish while she was a Samaritan. And John's little parenthesis in verse 9, did you catch that? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's a huge understatement. They have nothing to do with them and don't want to have either. Well, can, here's a question for us, I guess, at this point. Can we see past uh, social taboos of whatever sort there might be around us and see men and women and children, both born and pre-born, who need a personal touch from God as we reach out to them? We're really just joining Jesus in his search for lost people. And it's an act of grace. 
Philip Yancey has written a little book called What's So Amazing About Grace? I've appreciated that. It's an encouraging word. He quotes Gordon MacDonald, a pastor and author and Christian leader who himself has gone through a time of moral collapse and rebuilding in his life. Writes MacDonald, quote, The world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Now, that's an insight, I think, isn't it? You know, this weekend is also a time of reflection and remembrance of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Something very important to remember in regard to the civil rights movement as Dr. King pursued and championed it is this. His motivation and his rhetoric were solidly based on Christian and biblical assumptions about life and human interaction. He never shied away from clearly proclaiming that God had a perspective on the racial question and that ultimately we are one human family and must learn to seek to act like it, right? He was in the end a builder of bridges, not a builder of walls between different kinds of people. And he knew that anyone who reads the New Testament of the Bible knows this too. We all stand equally in need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We need the righteousness of Jesus applied to our hearts. We need the compassion of Jesus applied to our, our sinful and broken souls. We need what only Jesus can provide, regardless of what our skin tone might be or our accent might be or whatever else. I throw that in there because having been born in Texas, you know, I can, I can interpret for Jeannie when we're talking to somebody who's from the Deep South, but I only lived there five years, so all the accent went away, and I'm kind of stealth up here in Washington. But, um, you know, depending on who I'm talking with, I say, oh, I was dragged forcibly away from Texas against my will when I was five. Or, you know, I was liberated from Texas when I was five, and I'm, you know, it depends on who you're talking to as to which way you want to say that. <laughs> And maybe neither is a good idea. Let's get back to the story here. Notice something else. We offer necessary grace when we, we recognize every person's primary need. Let's read on a little bit, shall we? Again, in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <clears throat> Let's change the subject, shall we? Um, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Good stuff again. Well, notice this. What is the primary need of every person? Well, Jesus quickly turned the conversation from the obvious, their social differences, to the ultimately significant, eternal life. Now, that's what really mattered. The well itself provided the backdrop for his analogy. He said, salvation is, is like a spring of water that wells up forever in the soul and never runs dry. The woman first thought he was talking about the difference between well water and spring water. Uh, living water would be running water. You know, it's not just sitting there, it's moving. And so it's alive, so to speak. Well, he brought the woman to confess her need for something greater than her present experience. Did you catch that? Her comment was, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. <laughs> she was still thinking about, wow, never get thirsty again. That would be good. I would have to come out here in the heat of the day and do all this stuff and endure what I have to do to get water. Jesus, by the way, notice this, did not minimize the woman's sinful past, but he kept her on track with his emphasis, emphasis on a relationship with God. He knew her story. He knows all of our stories better than we do, probably. He moved from the, the analogous, you know, the comparison with water, to the personal when he said to the woman, um, go call your husband and come back. Well, you know, he knew the scenario. Perhaps her answer was a bit evasive and regretful when she simply said, I have no husband. Well, Jesus filled in the rest of the story. The woman had been with five husbands and was now living with a man who was not her husband. Well, Jesus, notice, revealed himself more directly to this woman with a reputation than he did to anyone else outside the disciples. Track that in your reading of the New Testament this year. When he told her in those clue words, understandable most clearly to a Jewish audience, ego I me, I am the one speaking to you. You know, this is, this is why the good news we have to share is a message of necessary grace. It is grace in that God offers us his love freely without reference to how worthy we are to receive it, but it's necessary because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Trying to get those two together is the challenge of Christian ministry in any context. Philip Yancey, again, begins his little book, What's So Amazing About Grace, with a story told to him by a friend who works, as he says, or worked at that time, with down-and-out people in Chicago. A story found in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, also. He said that the story continued to haunt him a long time after he heard it, and probably why he includes it in more than one of his books. Here's how he told it. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter, and through sobs and tears, she told me she had been, I'm sorry to say this, but she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her drug habit, and I, I could hardly bear, he said, hearing her sordid story, and for one thing, it made me legally liable. 
I'm required to report cases of child abuse. And I had no idea what to say to this woman. And at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Well, she might have been wrong about that, obviously, but maybe she was right also. What is the problem with this woman's perspective and experience? She had not found necessary grace. And perhaps it had never even been shown to her by Jesus' followers. At the very least, her imagination had erected some warped sense of what the church should be. You know, it should be a refuge in Jesus Christ, a hospital for recovering sinners of all sorts. I tell our folk at Chestnut Street frequently, we should start every one of our services kind of like this. Hi, my name is Frank, and I'm a sinner. And everyone else says, hello, Frank. This is a support group for people who are recovering from sin and death. Not a place where, you know, stuffed and dead saints are on display for the watching world to look on. And if you don't have that perspective, you haven't got it. You haven't figured out what grace really is yet. I urge you to do so. Speaking of myself here as well. We have all sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God. It's really a simple statement in Romans 3, but that's what it means. For all have sinned, and, and it doesn't say, and fell short. It says, and fall short. That means we're all still not measuring up. If we're thinking that we have to measure up somehow for God to accept us, we haven't figured out grace. We just haven't. That's what draws us in and transforms us when we confess our need for what only Jesus can do. He confronts us with this truth. Apart from his finished work on the cross, we would have no hope for spiritual recovery. Yet he offers us grace. He loves us anyway. Romans, you know, 5.8, right? For God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how huge his grace really is. Well, we also offer necessary grace when we rejoice in the work that God is doing in rescuing lost people. Notice the rest of the story. His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to, said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. <laughs> I bet that got him thinking. You know, Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Well, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. (laughs) Good stuff, right? Well, rejoicing in the work that God is doing in rescuing lost people. Notice, the disciples were amazed that Jesus was speaking with a Samaritan woman. A corollary, again, of the exclamation of the woman herself. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Her first level of amazement. Woman. Her second level of amazement. How can you ask me for a drink? Verse 9. And the woman was so caught up with the encounter with Jesus, notice that she rushed back into town without her water jar. We see here two evidences of genuine conversion. One, an emphasis on the eternal rather than the temporary. She took her immediate focus off of her physical needs after her encounter with Jesus. And two, the internal compulsion to bear witness. She rushed off to tell others about her encounter with him. Can you imagine the impact when a woman of such a reputation said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You know, what a day full of gossip that must have aroused. Could this be the Christ? She raised the question. She was convinced, I think. (laughs) But she raised the question with them. And then Jesus helped his disciples shift their focus from the temporary the conversation with a woman, food and drink, to the eternal, recognizing the harvest of souls. Well, I wonder, have we given attention lately to the intentional joy that knowing Jesus has made possible in our lives? Have we shared this with anyone? If you think about it, the the ultimate act of compassion by Christians is to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ and to rejoice when they enter an established relationship with Him that is no longer based on our witness alone, but on their own encounter with Him and their growing walk with Him. I have some friends who live in another town and whose lives I've had the privilege of being a very small part of what God used to bring them to faith. They have experienced about everything difficult that a married couple could experience and still be intact after more than 30 years, probably closer to 40 years now at this point in time. They, I mean, literally, they've dealt with adultery, sexual abuse, jail time by one of the partners, abortion, financial ruin, life-threatening injury on the job, children in trouble with the law, the death of a child at the age of 18 months, an adopted child's failure to bond, and then to turn to a promiscuous lifestyle that was practiced by the blood mother. I mean, how many more things could happen to one family? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And add to this, the false accusation of a jealous and dictatorial pastor that caused them to leave a church that they loved and all of the problems in life to this day that I've had kind of look like hangnails and stubbed toes. Yeah, I still complain about them, but good grief. Yet God has done a wonderful work in their lives. Just the fact that they're still married after all that is really quite amazing, let me tell you. And some of those terrible life experiences have been used by God to bring them to faith in Christ. They're still faithfully married. They're engaged in significant ministry at a substantial cost to themselves. Every time I review their life experience and ongoing faith, I think, necessary grace. How great it is. How much of a chance it gives us to make good in our lives. Well, notice, many in the story today believed in Jesus both from the woman's testimony and their own encounter with Jesus. And I think we need to learn to strive for the lives of people with the conviction that every life is a gift from God and that when that life is saved, 
both temporarily and for eternity, there is great cause for rejoicing. The experience of Mike and Rhonda Dennis demonstrates to what lengths such a value placed on human life will inevitably lead us. So let me share this with you so we're kind of wrapping up a little bit. After a third visit to a specialist, Mike and Rhonda discovered that the second child that Rhonda was carrying had a diaphragmatic hernia, a little hole in her baby's diaphragm. That's the muscle separating the chest cavity from the abdomen. It's getting a little too gory for Sunday. I'm sorry. I'm telling too many of these stories. But while this hole allowed, you know, some stuff of the insides there to kind of float up into the chest cavity and preventing the baby's lungs from developing properly, well, 60% of the time when this happens, the baby doesn't survive. In her case, the heart was also being pressed. And they had just been counseled, you know, the simplest thing to do here is to have an abortion. Don't deal with all that terrible mess. But as Christians, that was not an option for them. And so, seeing their determination to save the baby, a high-risk pregnancy specialist in West Palm Beach, Florida, suggested contacting, contacting a surgeon that he'd just been reading about, a doctor in California named Michael Harrison. Dr. Harrison had worked for over 25 years to perfect a technique of surgery on pre-born infants. It was still considered very controversial and experimental. Well, after they contacted Dr. Harrison, he viewed the sonogram, he wrote to them, and accepted their case. They were ecstatic, though they realized that even with a grant from the National Institutes of Health for that surgery, this was a few years ago, I don't know if they'd get that grant now, Michael would have to stay in Florida and keep working to keep the family afloat. Well, with the help of Rhonda's mother and a cousin who cared for their four-year-old son, the trip was planned. No promises were made, but with assurances from friends that God was in control of their lives and of little Maggie's future, as well as an assurance that Dr. Harrison believed in God, too, they went through with the surgery. The surgery on little Maggie was very tedious. It lasted four and a half hours leaving Rhonda with periodic cramping and nausea from the drug therapy that she was under. And she wound up back in the hospital on complete bed rest. She missed her husband, her little boy. She held on for several weeks until one day, the heart monitor connected to Maggie's heart suddenly stopped. And within seconds, doctors and nurses burst into the room, rushed her to the OR. She had made it seven weeks from the time of the surgery. Long enough, thought Dr. Harrison, for the baby's lungs to have developed. Her friend Judy was there, the one who had told her before, Here's some good words. God's driving this train. So long as we stay on it, everything will be all right. She prayed. The team performed a successful cesarean birth, and for the second time in her 33-week life, Maggie was carefully lifted from her mother's womb. She was handed to Dr. Harrison, who gave her a hopeful little slap, and Maggie drew in a breath, and then with all of her 3 pounds and 11 ounces, let out a lusty squawk, and the OR broke into cheers. One month after the birth of Maggie Macula Dennis, she and her mother left the hospital for home. And I, you know, I read this happy story when she was three years of age. By then, Maggie was a happy and healthy child who loved her big brother, Corey, and enjoyed coloring and listened, listening to her mother read stories. A few months after she returned home, Rhonda's, Rhonda sent doctors Harrison and Adzik, the other man who helped, a letter from the heart, quote, it was through God's love and mercy that Maggie is with us, she wrote. But that wouldn't have been possible had you not had the knowledge, the skill, and the will to save lives. I pray for you both. Well, let's just take this personally. 
Behold the sacred value of every human life. Jesus loves a woman who has failed morally and socially and religiously. He reaches out to her. He reveals himself to her. He shows her love and mercy. He treats her with respect, which no one else did in her life, it seems. And God inspires others to follow his example, affirming righteousness, but expressing necessary grace to the morally and physically and socially broken. Well, our challenge is simply go and do likewise, right? So we should begin here. We, we need to know that we have received this necessary grace ourselves. We must then open our eyes to see where we can express it. And then we should do so. It's amazing what will happen when we do. We can then sort of join in with a cheer and maybe the spiritual OR is people come to new life in Christ who have had such struggles and challenges and failures and yet find something in Jesus Christ that no one can find anywhere else. That's really what makes us the church, the body of Christ. Let's pray for a moment together, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your presence with us this morning and our opportunity to worship together here and to look into this uh, perhaps familiar story of Jesus' encounter with this woman of Samaria and to be uh, reminded again that we need what only you can provide in our lives and that indeed, apart from your grace and love, we would be hopelessly separated from you and we could not call out to you with confidence, our Father. So we thank you that you have shown us the value of every human being in the good news of Jesus and that our Lord Jesus himself demonstrated something of how that value can be expressed. Not diminishing the sin that other people have been entangled with, but offering them grace to break free from it and to live new lives reconnected to the, the one who alone can renew that image that perhaps has been terribly marred. Thank you that you are still able even to use our witness and our words and our actions to express this great grace. It is amazing. And we give you thanks that you have shown it to us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for My privilege. And let's, let's move into our time of Thanks. response. I want to give you all an opportunity to respond.